I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to another episode of Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts Katina and Garen. Last episode, we talked about Black Lives Matter, so make sure you go back and give that a listen if you haven't already. Today's topic is lynching in America. We will begin this episode with a discussion on what lynchings are, their long-term effects in the U.S., and why it's necessary to know that these events did and still do happen. Due to the length of this episode, we had to break it up into two parts. You're listening to part one. Make sure you keep an eye out for part two, where we hear the story of Lermont Stowers Jones. We interview the family at their house and ask them for their firsthand experience about the entire situation. You're not going to want to miss it. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Garen, last episode was heavy. And I know that this episode is going to feel heavy to a lot of our listeners. And something that a lot of white people, you know, when when we're just learning about these things in history that, you know, we didn't know about, we weren't taught, a lot of times it can feel heavy and it feels shame. Like I feel, ooh, I feel bad. There's this aspect of like, well, like I didn't do those things, but I also am like kind of complicit in this system that I'm beginning to learn more and more about. Can you speak real quick before we get into kind of lynching in America to that effect of, you know, I feel shame. Like, can you help me? Is that okay? Is that, because it, it doesn't feel good. It feels uncomfortable. So can you help me and help our listeners tie that in? Is that okay? So that's a great question. I think that when we feel shame, we, our instinct is to want to run from it. But there's two ways to stop feeling shame. The one is to run from the shame and to hide it, pretend like it's not there. The other is to pass through the shame, through grief and through acknowledgement into a new reality of repentance and reconciliation. And that's the road that we should choose. So instinctively, we want to live in the comfortable reality we've been in. Most white people today have forgotten the history of racial inequality and injustice in America. It's not taught in our history books. Our history books have been bleached. We see things from this comfortable perspective that kind of elevates us as heroes. And it's nice to live in that reality and not have to deal with this. But to quote Brian Stevenson, a civil rights lawyer, um, he said that we are haunted by the past, by the, the racial inequality in our past. And it continues to haunt us today in, our, in ourselves, in our institutions. And until we acknowledge the reality of what's happened and allow ourselves to pass through that second door of acknowledging it, grieving it, and then pursuing genuine reconciliation that is loving and pursuing the peace and reconciliation with black and brown brothers and sisters and our neighbors and fellow citizens until we 
make things right, it's going to continue to haunt us. It's going to continue to affect us, our institutions. And so we need to grieve. We need to let ourselves feel that sense of shame. Now, that doesn't mean that we actually, you shouldn't take that feeling of shame as the same thing as guilt, because then maybe you don't know how to deal with it. Because if you didn't actually do the things that you're reading about when you start to dive into this conversation and learn about how bad the past has been. If you didn't actually do those things, you might not know how to respond. And so we're going to talk more later about the right ways to respond. It's a little bit different of a process than when you actually personally commit a wrong. But there's still a process there. There's still a process of, of grieving it and moving past it, memorializing it, and making things right. You know, we're recording this a few weeks after George Floyd and the story that we're going to be talking about with Vermont Stars Jones uh, some people would say that it's like a quote-unquote modern-day lynching. And, you know, the term lynching is being brought up a little bit more than usual. Can you tell us what is lynching? What does that mean that it's a modern-day lynching? Maybe we can start to dive into the conversation about that. So I said a second ago that our history books have not accurately recorded the past. And this is one area where I have been shocked by how poor my picture of the reality of lynching was before researching for this episode. I thought that lynching, the way that I heard about it in my history books and growing up, that what I had in my head is like the picture of what happened is so far removed from how bad it was. I thought that it was just like occasionally black people outside of the normal court system, there would be like quick trials where they would be found guilty and they'd be hung on trees as an example to like scare people. I knew that it was bad. I knew that it was to scare the black community, but Y'all, it was so much worse, so barbarically bad that I've just been shocked as I've dove, dove into understanding what happened. Lynching was a period in America where we had from 1860s to 1955 was the last recorded lynching or the last uh, year or the first year without a lynching was 1955. So for that whole period, it was a brutal, organized, backed by the state or like the state was fully complicit in it, campaign of terrorism to support a racial caste system in America. And I mean, that's a lot of elements to it. We can, we can go through some of those a little bit slower here. It was a form of terrorism. It was, there were many lynchings where the victims weren't just hung on trees, but they were strapped to cars and paraded through black commercial districts or brought through the black part of town to terrify the residents. There are many lynchings where black people would be threatened that anyone who's here this time tomorrow, we're going to lynch you also. And so entire black communities would flee or have to relocate. There is the massacre in Tulsa that history has started to recover, has started to rediscover. Right. Uh, that was largely kind of brushed over. But then there were many other massacres like it that where, where hundreds of black people would be injured or killed entire communities would be devastated. And lynching was perpetuated in order to suppress black people, in order to oppress them. I actually was trying to think of a, an analogy to really help people understand the way that it operated or like the strategic impact of lynching. So this is, this is what I came up with to just try to explain it. Imagine that if you're like a college student at a university... And there was a new super sexist dean or new president of the school got put in charge who was super sexist. And 
decided that, okay, from now on, I'm going to implement this new policy where the highest scoring woman at the end of each class term, the end of the semester, whoever, whichever woman is, scores the highest in each class, we're going to expel from the school. That's a little bit like the kind of uh, like the strategic dynamics of what happened is is what would happen in that case if you're a female student in your class and you know that the highest scoring girl is going to get expelled what you're going to try to do is you're going to try to not stand out you're going to try to not perform at your highest level you're probably going to try to get a C to pass the class but not get expelled and during the lynching era basically white people would target high-performing black people. If they were rich, if they were demanding equality, if they were speaking up for, oftentimes ministers were targeted because the black ministers would be speaking up for equality. And like very legitimately pointing out biblical texts that support love and equality and they would be targeted for that. If there were black people trying to register other black people to vote, they would be targeted for that. So is this anytime... Black people would start to rise up. It was a way to use terrorism, this public terrorism that oftentimes, y'all, I mean, these lynchings would oftentimes be attended by hundreds or thousands of white people. Garen, I don't want to brush past something you said earlier. You said that the state was complicit in it. Can you, like, I guess, I think maybe some of our listeners can think, and even myself, these lynchings were like, you know, the government weren't involved. Involved, the police weren't involved, and it was just kind of some rogue, crazy, racist people. When you say the state is complicit, what do you mean by what? What does that mean? There are many ways in which the state was complicit. That's a great question. First, the federal government just failed to do anything. Even when they had political power, they there were two hundred different anti-lynching bills that were brought before the Senate, and they all died. They let them all die. Some of them, and just the, after a short filibuster, they just let it go. These bills were just trying to outlaw, yeah, trying to killing. make the practice illegal. Yeah, and and they refused to do anything with it. They didn't. They didn't pass it. But then also the the way that it worked was the Supreme Court had basically made a decision that said that black people could not be killed by the state without federal intervention, but that it was the states who would regulate or police it anytime black people were killed by non-state actors. And so what happened was in the South, you had this system where the police couldn't kill a black person, couldn't lynch them, or the federal government would intervene. But the police could just unlock the jail cell and step aside and let other people come in and do it. The police, basically the total history of lynching, there was only 1% of the perpetrators of the lynching were ever given any kind of justice. So in only 1% of cases, even though the those who did the lynchings were doing it in broad daylight, oftentimes photographing themselves with a the body, doing it in, in public spaces, sometimes announcing the lynching in advance, sometimes advertising it in the newspaper, sending postcards of themselves posing with the lynched bodies. And yet even then, only 1% of the time was there any kind of pursuit of justice. So the police, the governors, the government just abandoned its post deliberately. I mean, really what was happening is they would have done it themselves if they could. If you're a police officer and you're abandoning your post so that somebody can be lynched because you know the federal government will intervene if you do it yourself, then you're not just like failing to protect that person. It's like a system where like you're part of it. You're, you, you just can't pull the trigger yeah. yourself so you're handing someone else the gun. 
So I'm just going to say a couple of things real quick. As you were talking, I was taking notes. So lynching, you, you mentioned the lynching era, era. And yes, there was a period of time where lynching took place as a normative. But I would say with police brutality, we're still seeing the same. So mm-hmm. lynching has never ended. I mean, we had James Byrd in Jasper, Texas in the 90s who was tied to a truck and dragged And people think of lynching as like a rope, but lynching is like the assertion of white power and privilege. It's basically infliction on black bodies to say we're better, we're superior, and we we do this because we can. And so we're seeing lynchings with what happened with George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery. That was definitely a lynching. That was asserting privilege. It's no different from open carry, for example. You know, Willie Hudspeth is an advocate, an activist in Denton who has been protesting the uh, Confederate monument for 18 years now. And thank God it's about to come down. But there was once, there's been times where guys with assault weapons, because open carry is a thing, have walked up on him. And, and try to intimidate, and they're like, I'm going to shoot you, just that type of thing. And, and there's no arrest. And so it's just this assertion of privilege, like the privilege of open carry, knowing that black people, we can't walk around with, with, with guns. I mean, we can le- legally, lawfully, but we know that there's like, the people are intimidated by black people. They're intimidated by black bodies and black presence. And so it's this assertion of I'm doing this because I can and I know that I'm not going to pay for it, basically. And so that people think of lynching. He's not hanging from a tree. He's not hanging from a rope. But it's, it's that affliction on black bodies. You know, America has a history of taking out its resistance to oppression on black bodies. And that's what lynching is. Lynching is. It's a resistance to fighting oppression and saying that I'm, I can do this and I'm going to do this and I'm not going to pay the cost for it. You know, just like when Megger Evers was shot down and the man who killed him went many, 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 many years and the family had to fight, 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 fight just to get an arrest. And I mean, this man didn't get arrested until he was old, old, old. And he killed Megger in the 60s and he bragged about it openly. That's a lynching. Even though he shot and killed him, it's still a lynching. It's, a, it's an assertion of privilege. And it's, it's the way to intimidate and take out white supremacy on black bodies, which is another reason why I am so, you know, I'm, 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 I'm infuriated as images of black bodies, images of infliction upon black bodies, it's just, it's a, it's a normative. It's like, ooh, look at this video of this person being shot down. Ooh, look at this video. And I mean, millions upon millions upon millions of views. Like, I refuse to watch the video of George Floyd because I don't need to watch it to know that it's horrific. I don't need a video to prove to me that what happened was absolutely demonic. I don't need to see a dead black body to know that. My black body feels it internally whenever I hear of a story, not ha- not having to see it. And it's even things like when Barack Obama was voted for president, there was a a spiritual shift where white people were angry that he won. 
I remember the day after Barack Obama won and just how you could feel this white fury. I mean, I was getting doors slammed in my face. I was getting called a nigger bitch. I was getting people walking to the office where I work and just saying the nastiest things because they were angry that a black man was president. And this wasn't just my experience. There's this thing where when privilege, white privilege is challenged and the system of white supremacy is challenged, the response is to make a black body pay for it. Mm-hmm. And that's lynching. Even in the spiritual sense, it's like you see black skin and you are just appalled at, our, at the existence of a black body being able to be free and not confined and not bound to what your ideas of race are or that we, like you said, like that we would obtain wealth, that we would, you know, be able to purchase a certain car or live in, live in a certain neighborhood. And so it, it, lynching is, 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 is established to resist the movement of anti-slavery in response and defiance to the emancipation, to assert superiority during Jim Crow as freed black people would build townships, wealth and independence, to intimidate with lynching and even with the erection of monuments. It's like we're going to claim our right as white people, and we're going to put these black bodies in their place. Mm -hmm. Point along those lines, the Emancipation Proclamation legally made it so that white people could not own black people, but it did not make white people recognize the humanity of black people. Mm -hmm. There's nowhere in the code of the law that it said you have to acknowledge black people as equal or as full humans. And in fact, the Supreme Court said after that that separation, separate but equal, was okay and facilitated the the racial system, the racial caste system that came from that time. The Emancipation Proclamation did not, it ended slavery, it did not end white supremacy. Right. White supremacy was alive and well and is alive and well today. It's taken different forms and it's shifted over time based on what is legal and what is culturally permissible. It it got a big setback during the world wars because America was losing a PR campaign against communism. (laughs) And the communists were pointing out how racist we were and they were able to like flip some countries to communism overseas. And so America started to crack down. But like white supremacy itself has been here all along and lynching was a main tool of white supremacy during this time that, yeah, anytime black people started to show equality or, or started to like grasp for equality or started to advance, there, it was a terror campaign yeah. where the white community would form a mob. And, and, and some, some of the things that people would be lynched for are so absurdly small. I'm just going to read some of these just so you can like grasp the dynamic that existed. Let me just read read off some. So of, you're you're about to read things of why people were killed. The reasons publicly. The 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 transgressions that triggered lynchings. So okay. you can see how small the slights were, and then I'll kind of explain it a little bit more. Jesse Thornton was lynched for referring to a white police officer by his name. Private Charles Lewis was lynched after he refused to empty his pockets while wearing an army uniform. Richard Wilkerson was lynched for allegedly slapping a white man who had assaulted a black woman. 
Jeff Brown was lynched for accidentally bumping into a white girl as he ran to catch a train. Sam Gates was lynched for the offense of annoying white girls. General Lee was lynched for merely knocking on the door of a white woman's house. Thomas Miles was lynched for allegedly writing letters to a white woman inviting her to have a cold drink with him. After being accused of associating with a white woman in Newton, Texas, John Griggs was hanged and shot 17 times and his body was dragged behind a car through the town for hours. William Brooks was lynched after he asked his white employer for permission to marry the man's daughter. Lacey Mitchell was lynched for testifying against a white man accused of raping an African-American woman, and the white defendant was acquitted and released. Hundreds of African-Americans accused of no serious crime were nonetheless lynched for a myriad offenses, including speaking disrespectfully, refusing to step off the sidewalk, using profane language, using an, an improper title for a white person, suing a white man, arguing with a white man, bumping into a white woman, insulting a white person, and other social grievances. Essentially, lynching created this system where any black person constantly lived the pleasure of whatever white person was around. If you were a black person who owned a business and a white person came into your store and said, I'll give you half price for that item, then you either said yes and you were extorted and black businesses were just like oppressed over time, or you said no And there were instances where you would be lynched for that. It created this system where, as a black person, you had no power. You couldn't go through the courts because in these southern states where lynching was the most predominant, there there was no help for you from, from the courts. The courts were completely run by people who were complicit in the system. And so there was, there was no way out. And so then you had one of the results of lynching was mass migration, that you had millions of people, six million people, fled the South because they were part of this brutal terror campaign and they went up North. And even in the North, we think of the ghettos in the North we're like derogatory oftentimes in our thoughts towards them. Like, why don't they work? Why don't they get a job? Literally, the people who fled North were, were refugees. They, we should think of them as refugee camps. They were literally fleeing a domestic terror campaign in which thousands of people were killed. And not just killed, y'all, their, their, their bodies were filled with hundreds of bullets in many instances. There's a, a story, I can't even read it because it's too grotesque, but there's a story that I have in my notes. They would take corkscrews and spin them into the bodies and pull out flesh. Like the cruelty, kids would come and watch this. The cruelty of what we did was astounding. And then millions of people would flee that as, as like war refugees. And then they would get up north and things would be just only marginally better. There's still complete segregation and there were lynchings that happened up north too in order to get the black people to stay in line. I mean, it's still supported white supremacy up there, too. I I was going to say that, you know, lynching is to subdue, intimidate, and silence Black people. And people may wonder, like, how do you get to the point where you're screwing corks into people's bodies or hanging them from trees? Because people will think, well, those people Mm -hmm. are on the fringes. They, They are awful people. I would never do something like that. Right. But there's silencing that happens all the time. It's the same spirit. 
It's the same spirit of, well, let, let me assert myself over you. Let me silence you. Your story doesn't matter. Let me put my favorite Black person who agrees with everything that I say over you as an authority and basically silence your voice, silence your story, silence your experiences. That is the spirit in which lynching thrives because that is exactly what happened. You know, they would place Black people, and and this is no shade because a lot of times as Black people, we contextualize Black stories of where Black people had to betray other Black people just to live because they were threatened. They were all enslaved. They were all, like, there there was no hierarchy. There was no privilege within the Black community that was enslaved. And so, you know, it was either you tell these black people this or you do these things to black pe- other black people or I'm going to kill your kids or I'm going to lynch your mom or, you know. And so it's just this entire system of sub- subduing, intimidating and silencing. But like I said, in the same spirit, we do that all the time in just conversation when we refuse to listen, when we, you know, refuse to engage beyond our level of comfort, we do it. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to take away from the horror of like physical lynching because it is absolutely horrifying. It is terrorism. But how we get there is these little things like a, a white person who would never physically lynch a person, but they're asserting their, you know, superiority asserting their privilege, silencing black voices, coming up with these crazy conspiracy theories as opposed to just listening and hearing and lamenting. It's the same spirit, you know? And so there's a saying in our community, if you if you'll lie, you'll cheat. If you'll cheat, you'll steal. And if you'll steal, you'll kill. That's, you know, black folks, everybody knows that saying. And that's the same, that's what I think of when I think of lynching. You know, you go from one what seems small, one small thing into this heinous thing, but it's all the same and it's all the same spirit. Katina, I think one of the things that I'm thinking of like some of the, and maybe both of you can help me speak into or help our listeners speak into the long-term effects of what racial terror lynching did. But one of the things that I'm thinking of, if I'm a black person with children during that time frame, yeah, I am imagining that you're constantly terrified and there's things that you tell your kids to avoid. Like there's way, like you have to basically coach your kid on how to interact with white people, okay? Because they were like physically killing them, right? Yeah. So let's fast forward to today where, you know, maybe there's not as much physical, and kind of what you just alluded to. There's not as many people going out in the streets and killing black and brown people, although that is happening. Of course But there's is. more of what you were just alluding to, just trying to silence them or maybe like, hey, that's your experience, but that's not the truth. And there's ways that they do it over social media and with through conversation. But I imagine that you still to this day, and you can speak to this as a mother of black boys, you know, I'm assuming that you still have to coach them on how to interact with white people in general. So can you speak a little bit th- that Absolutely. The, the similarities of like, you know, what they had to do a couple hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, and what you're having, how you even carve that path with your children. If I could just real it, quick make one comment. Go ahead. A hundred years ago is, understand, Donald Trump was 11 in 1955, <laughs> the first year without a lynching. This is not ancient history. I mean, there are people alive that, 
experience this. Yeah. There are people alive here, our listeners. Some of y'all's parents probably, or I don't know how old you are, your parents or grandparents attended lynchings and they wouldn't talk about it because why would they? Not, not all of y'all, but some of y'all, that yeah. like odds are like over a million white people attended <laughs> lynchings. This, this, there were 10,000, crowds of 10,000, 5,000 at many of these things. So this is not ancient history. And some of these people are alive. I mean, it's, a con, it's just an ongoing generational trauma. Um, I was talking to my oldest son about it. So, and it's a constant state of victim shaming, in a sense. So we're pressed and marginalized people. And it's like, don't go over there. Don't do this. Don't do that. And I saw it even with like my great grandparents, my great, great grandparents, if a white person, if we went to town, because my, at one point we had like five generations living. My great, great grandmother that I talk about, she, she died when I was 20, but I would stay at her house, you know, stay in their cabin with them in, in the country in Memphis. And we would go to town, which was, you know, Carrieville, which was predominantly white town. And just how she, when we would walk around and we, we see white people, of course, you know, I have a framework for racism and I've experienced it, but how I would walk walk through the town how, versus how she would walk through the shops and stuff, it would be like her head is down and grabbing me, you know, to pull me over when a white person came, walked up. If a white person came up and said, hello, how are you? You could just feel, I could feel in my elders just this, intimidation and just because that was their reality. But as I've grown up and experienced racism myself, and I know the story of my my elders that they've shared with me, and I've witnessed just horrible things. I mean, you know, people, people will say, you, when we talk about like interracial dating, like my oldest son, you know, he has white friends and he grew up, we grew up, he grew up in white spaces. We're in Denton for crying out loud. When he would go over to, or when he wanted to visit a white girl, you know, as a friend, I would immediately panic and think, okay, I I would call parents and I would say, I want to make sure that you understand that my son is going to be coming over. Are you going to be at the house? And some people would think, well, that's normal for anybody. No, it's not. There's extra steps that I take because, and I would tell them, because I want my son to come home alive. I don't want there to be any misconception that my son is at your house and you're not there and you walk in the door and your daughter is in trouble, but instead of telling the truth that he's over there visiting her because she invited him, you know, then, then there's a gun at my side. Like, I spelled this out. Because that's a reality. I know that experience because amongst my many black friends who are six-figure plus living in, you know, the wealthiest of neighborhoods and with all the education and degrees, that's happened to their sons. That's happened to our sons. And so there is a fear. I'm like, you, you can't just go over to a white person's house. And this is, you know, he's an adult now, but that's, that's the way I raised him. Because I, how many black young men do I know that have been falsely accused of rape, of, you know, of things just because 
white girls get to have the privilege of, you know, indiscretion, and they know that they can flip the script and blame the black dude. And we're seeing that now, like a woman accused uh, two black people that she imagined of accusing, uh, she accused them of killing her autistic son when they find out later on that she did it. But everybody knows that they can blame the black guy. And so, yeah, I set some serious boundaries around my kids as they engage with other white children because you, I don't know that their parents, those children's parents aren't racist because a lot of times people are closeted racist where they will come to you and they'll, you know, in public, oh, hi, and your son is so great, but you don't know what people are going to do behind closed doors and you don't know what sits in their heart because I've known people just in this era of Trump, people that we would have called friends that are now coming out to be complete racist. And you see this in the rhetoric and the stuff that they spew. And so it took something like this for people to come out of the closet with their hatred. So yeah, I'm very, very careful when it comes to my sons, just just doing something as innocent as going to visit with no, no intent to do anything, but just, hey, I'm going to my friend's house. And that trauma on your children, oh my gosh, like it's been... Just walking my boys through that pain is just, it's difficult. And like I said at one of the protests, like people think that black people are at home just gaslighting their kids. Mm. I don't seek to talk to my kids about this stuff. There's, I, I'm very careful because I need them to have joy and hope. And so, and I'm a good mother and I'm not here to just I don't want my kids to feel this. I don't want this to be their normal. I want them to be able to go out and enjoy life and be free. Unfortunately, what I want for them and what many people in the world want for them or see them as is is totally different. And so I have to equip my kids and therefore inflict a level of trauma onto them. And my parents had to do the same with me. So I'm consciously, I'm always aware of my blackness and how it may be an offense or stumbling block just because I exist. Like shopping, going shopping and being followed, you know, being pulled over for zero reasons. (laughs) And just being able to see that and know that it's because of your black skin. And not because you, you know, people like, oh, everybody's always saying that racism. No, we live it, we know it, It, it's in our DNA. We understand, we we know the looks, the, the words, the nuances. We know because this is our existence. Many of us will choose to overlook it because you pick your battles and you just cannot sustain. If I were to absorb every single microaggression that I get on a daily basis, if I were to absorb that and just let that sit on me, I wouldn't make it. But then even just the mental health of black children, we're seeing a lot of that in our kids where they don't want to be black or... They think that white is better because they see that at school. They have racist teachers, some of them, and they see they're being criminalized and they know it and they see it and they feel it. And they come home and they talk about it. And they don't, they may not have the language for it, but you know, when they're talking to you, mom, this teacher did X, Y, Z. And there's, <laughs> you, you know, because you grew up feeling the same thing. Hmm. And that trauma, it's, it's just hard. My my youngest son is really struggling right now, and he's very vocal about like he's he, all my boys very critical thinkers, they're amazing. But he is starting to digress because he's just tired. He's just tired 
of having to think about his blackness in a negative way because that's the way people are, like having to make yourself small. And I, I tell my boys, like, there's got to be a balance. I don't want you to make yourself small. I want you to be exactly who you are. You need to be aware that there are people that are going to see you different, but that's not your burden or responsibility. When there comes a time when you have to face and make a decision based on someone being racist, do what you need to do to get out alive. Do what you need to do to get out, but then shake that off because that's still not your burden, even though it's your burden. It's a weird space. I I mean, hearing you talk about that is, I find what's interesting about that in America is how you're so aware of your blackness. Yes. And how, how my experience as a white man is the direct opposite. It's I'm so unaware of my whiteness. And it's almost, it's so interesting because growing up, we don't talk about that. I think I think the best way to describe, you know, long-term effects of like little decisions of you're at a grocery store and your three-year-old says, oh, look at that brown person. And a, and a, and a parent goes, shh, 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 you know, don't, don't say that. It's like, okay, well, why not? I would say, right. why can't they say that? And then two, what is your response to that? And then if you're just responding to a child who's just curious in nature about literally everything and you're shushing them, what is that doing over the term, over a long-term period of time where you're not talking about, it's like, you know, you know, there's something there, but we don't, we don't want to talk about it. And I think that how that evolves into how different of a life that we live, that people live, that you're the person living across the street from you lives. The, the kids that are going to school with your kids have such a unique life. And, and I would even say that sometimes we think, okay, yeah, you've got to have a talk with your black and brown children about this experience. But I'd say you need to talk about your, uh, talk to your white children about these experiences. I think I almost am just, as a parent of two white children, they've got to know this stuff. And I want them to learn about everyone's experiences. And like, they need to be able to, to, when they see someone shushing someone for that, like I want them to step up and use their experience to push against these things that are just so, even as like, like a common sense thing of like, when a, when a child says, oh, look, there's a brown person. I think, honestly, that is a really great question to ask yourself. If you have a kid, I mean, they're probably going to say that. All of my children have asked that. Absolutely. I would maybe think about your response. And I think if you don't have a, if you don't even have a response, I think that maybe, you know, I, I'm not like trying to shame you, but I think this, these are good questions because I think if you can, if you can t- explain things to a four-year-old child, I think then maybe you're starting to learn some things, but I would just encourage parents of, of white children, like you've got to coach your kids on these things. These aren't, our kids know these things. They're smarter than we think they are. And they, they show biases by the time they're four, I think there's, there's studies Absolutely. out there. And it's like, I mean, my kids see these things and it, we don't shush them. We celebrate these things and yeah. That person does have brown skin. They're beautiful. And that's not a weird thing. If you make it weird when they're four years old, how much weirder is it going to be for a 24-year-old? You know what I mean? Like, I think there's a, yeah. there's a connection there. And I think just mm-hmm. how vastly different the experience is from, 
from someone like me. Well, and just real quick, I was going to say that it's just how it plays out is so in in ways that we don't even think about. Like just being in the grocery store and there's this thing about proximity and boundaries. Like black people are used to get being being invisible. I'm in the store and white women will just reach over me or, you know, just get way too close. And this is a thing in the black community where we know, like, it's like you're invisible, but visible. You are black. And then it's like, oh, that's just a black person. Mm. And so there's just this thing where you have no space to exist. And so there have been several instances, and some of them have played out in the media, where black people have gotten tired of being reached over and just touched and people walk up and touch your hair or pet your children's heads or Mm. we become like these animals to people or these, I don't know, these objects. We we become objectified. And yeah, if you don't start having your having conversations with your children about, hey, yes, that is a brown skinned person. God made them in his likeness and image. Isn't their skin beautiful? That that helps everybody. That helps the black children and the white children. And it takes away the perspective of their other. Exactly. Because they're not. They're not other. They're, uh, they're in your churches. They're in your kids' schools. They're on your kids' school bus. Right. They're in the gym. They're, it's not going to change. And so the more that we can educate not only us, but children on like, there isn't other. They're, they're not this other special weird people. They're us. We have to give language. Yeah, to, we have to learn the language. Yeah. Garen, to affirm humanity, to exactly. affirm human beings. Garen, can you can you talk to a little bit of just, you know, why did do, why does it matter that this happened? Why does it why is it helpful that we know this past history of lynching in America and kind of maybe what it's evolved into currently? Why does it why why does it matter? Why should we learn about it? It weighs even on the discussion we were just having, uh, just thinking about like kind of even setting up and understanding how we got to where we are and what the present is. During the lynching era, era, it's super easy to see why if you're a black person and all of a sudden a white person comes up to you, all of a sudden you have a shot of adrenaline and you are afraid. You're like hyper vigilant. Black people were hyper vigilant anytime a white person was around because that white person had the power with whether they their, intended like, to false or not. accusation or yeah they could just like a white person could stir up a lynch mob especially a white woman if she wanted to she could she had the power to stir up a lynch mob with just just saying an accusation it didn't even have to be true or it didn't even have to be substantive it could just be he said something i didn't like and so black people learned to be afraid of white people absolutely and that continues to today where because of the, the system has shifted, but there's still all these microaggressions. There's still a lot of white people, whether they admit it or even are aware of it, white people still think that they're superior. Yep. And so for black people, if you are a white person, a white listener, and you're around black people, you have to project love, to to project that you that I see you as a person in order to even start a conversation where where you put your black friends at ease and show that you see their humanity. And that's like a direct legacy of lynching, of the past. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's 
shifted over time. Other ways it affects our institutions. The Supreme Court still draws on precedents of racist decisions that they've made in the past. Our churches during the lynching era, the white churches, first of all, they segregated the black people so that they couldn't be involved. Sometimes they would like even directly kick them out of the church and not let them attend or participate. And then they didn't let them have any positions of leadership, no positions of ministry. And so that's what caused the formation of the black church. Persecution. Yeah, the black church didn't start because black people decided we want to just worship by ourselves. It started because white people were racist, and that institution continues today. And then Christianity in America now is still largely segregated and still has like antiquated views of race and a misunderstanding of their own history regard with regards to race. If you look at the denominations and some of the decisions that they've made during this era, those have direct impact on today and are we're still suffering the effects of it. We still have segregated churches. We still have institutions that are slanted in favor of white people, like all across the board. Well, and can we just get put language to it and say that Black Christians and the Black church in America is a result of persecution, that American Christianity persecuted the Black church. The Black body of believers were persecuted because we always look overseas for persecuted, the persecuted church, and we'll, we'll just, you know, oh my gosh, pray for these Christians in this country because they're being persecuted by Muslims you know, it becomes this rhetoric and propaganda, but we won't say and acknowledge that the black body of believers, black Christians in America, were persecuted by the white church, Mm -hmm. the, you know, American church. Yeah, and the white church, there's been a few statements along the way that have trickled out of, like, apologies, but by and large, the white church has not done the work. Like, when we've come to that point that we talked about earlier of feeling shame we have sulked away from it rather than going through it to repentance. So yeah, the the legacy of lynching continues today. And the most obvious way in which it continues today, or maybe the most direct analogy is in the criminal justice system. That still today, there's a regular practice of prosecutors striking all the black jurors, creating all white juries, and there's a podcast that Radio Lab did that was really good on that. What's it called? More Perfect has a really good podcast on that. You could look up. There has been the police system in America was initially set up to protect white people from black people. That's the history. The roots of policing in America is police departments protect white people from black people. And that institutional racism has shifted over time and been whittled down a little bit over time, but it still exists today. And still you have white police officers going in like an occupying army in ghettos that were originally set up as refugee camps of people leaving terrorism. And then white police officers, sometimes it'll be like you know 90% white or more going into areas that are 90% black or more and policing them. So like we have this, this past that has still kind of just like overflowed and it kind of bubbles up all over the place, the effects of it on today. And until we see it and look into it and grieve it and deal with it, we can't rebuild an actual fair and loving and just society. Well, and police were not started to protect white people from black people, but it was to assert terrorism on black people, on, for white, on white people's behalf. 
Mm-hmm. Because again, black like the people, slave patrols. Yeah, it was the slave patrol. Black people are enslaved. How many of them are gonna actually commit crimes, knowing that they could be mutilated, knowing that white mobs will lynch them, kill their families? So it was an assertion of white power over black people. And then you were talking about we were talking about churches. Jessica, who you guys interviewed for Lamont Stowers Jones case, she is a PhD student at UNT, and she has all of these records of many of the founders of white churches in Denton who were part of the KKK. And and these are people whose pictures are on the walls in churches, in their churches today as their founders that were part of KKK, that lynched black people, that had, they had KKK campaigns and membership drives in Mm -hmm. their churches. I'm just talking about Denton. And we know this is across the country. But, I mean, there is documentation, records of this. And so, yeah, I I just have to to continue to assert, like, this persecution that we don't, that mainstream America doesn't want to think about. And, of course, it's generational and it's playing out. It's still playing out because we haven't dealt with it. We Mm -hmm. haven't dealt with it. Katina, can you speak a little bit to black and brown people that are in white spaces? I think sometimes it's it's helpful for for white people to hear some of those insights and conversations of what that's like. Mm -hmm. But I I know that we have some black and brown people that listen to the podcast, and so I'd love for you to to kind of speak into speak into them a little bit. We're tired. That that's the biggest thing is that we're exhausted. I am black person that attends a, a white church. And there have been, and while, you know, my pastor is very affirming and is doing great work, there's just been a lot of wounding from just members because we have multi-genons in our church. I had one man tell me, I remember when we had to vote to let a black person in. And he was the same person that told me that because we were talking about, I don't know how we got to talking about race. It was during a church dinner, prayer dinner. And he, it's so funny how people gravitate to black bodies and then want to pour out all this speech, Mm -hmm. you know, just, it's weird. But he was telling me about these friends that he had when they were in middle, when they were in elementary school. And then he came back, they came back for middle school and he acted like a nigger. And he literally said that in the foyer of the church in front of a whole host of witnesses. And I could have come unglued, mm-hmm. but I, and, and, and this is the thing, it's not our responsibility to carry white people's burden. It's not our responsibility to absolve white people and to clear their conscience. But mm-hmm. so many times we become this default. If the pastor preaches a sermon, then all of a sudden the, the black people are called up for lunch and just treated like lab rats. I don't know how else to say it. You want to ask 50 million questions about stuff that you have no, had no interest in for 364 days, but one day your pastor preaches a sermon about whiteness and blackness and race, and all of a sudden you need to check off your list that you were intentional with a black person, had lunch with them, and poked and prodded them. We're tired. We are exhausted. There are black ministers in white churches who everybody's looking to. Everybody's looking for us to be the voice of the entire race, mm-hmm. 
and to answer all their questions because they've talked about, because they've watched 50 million Candace Owens videos and PragerU videos, and they want to debate, like, can we just live? If that's what your default is for your engagement with a Black person, leave them alone. That's what I have to say. Leave us alone if that's all you want to do. It, because we still have to live. We are watching Black bodies be mutilated on TV for sport with no penalty, with no, 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 with, with no accountability. And then we have to shoulder the burden of your white curiosity. Read a book, leave us alone. If that's, like, if you don't want to engage in true friendship because your heart is to be a friend and to love and to care like you would your white friends, don't, leave, leave black people alone. Like, seriously. Because we're not, we don't exist for that. It's just, it's disrespectful. And, you know, I know a lot of white people will go, well, what do we do? There's a million things you can do besides that. Black people are enduring trauma. It's not our job to teach you. There's a world, whole worldwide web, just like you found Candace Owens, and you listen to everything she has to say. You can go find mainstream people that speak to the mainstream, the cultural collective experience of black people that have different views from you. You can find those people on the internet and listen to what they have to say. And so that's the thing, it's just trauma and fatigue. I had a Zoom meeting with a group of black people from my church and with the black church leadership. And you just see it, it's just trauma and fatigue. It's, it's, it's overwhelming as we have to shoulder, only being visible to the extent that we are having to endure trauma and infliction. It's overwhelming and we're tired. Garen, can you, we'll kind of wrap it up here on like, so what do we do now? I know we're going to have, we're going to have a website that we want people to go to. And I feel like we're just going to kind of constantly put in front of people EJI as a resource for, I mean, anything. I feel like they literally have written the book on so many things there. I would say if you don't know of EJI or the Equal Justice Initiative, I think it's something that you're going to need to know about. And they're doing really great work. They put out great resources. So knowing that we're going to do that, Karen, what, what do we do now? I mean, a lot of what we're hearing is people need to educate themselves. I don't think the first step, like as of uh, what Katina was saying, the first step isn't Go find a black person so that you can feel better about having a, a black friend. That's that. I think there's a pool to that, and, and I think that pool isn't necessarily. I mean, depending on your intentions, it could be wrong, and that that would be a great goal is to have black and brown friends and not just white friends. But what do we do now? What what can we do? Yeah, I mean, I think the problem is not pursuit of friendship. The problem is the elaborate thing, like the the pursuing black people in order to like engage in this curious conversation about race, but then coming with a heart posture that just wants to defend mm. white people right, right. throughout the, the ages. So it's like you, you don't want to go up to a black person and have them educate you on something that you are going to be defensive about. Cause then that puts them in the position of having to like justify their own trauma to you and, and kind of like defend that they feel the way they feel. Instead, you want to go find resources and and not just white people, like find black people who have put out resources 
And I think EJI is like super high quality for this episode. That's going to kind of be the where we send you. But to educate yourself and to find out what has happened and to walk through that process of grieving so that then when you go to black people and pursue friendship, you can see them, see their hurt, and you can love. The, the goal can be love, not, hey, I'm going to give you five minutes to convince me right. of something that I don't agree with. But instead, hey, I see you, I'm sorry, and how can I like be loving to you through this. So it's like a totally different heart posture. And in order to get to that heart posture, you have to first do some some homework to, to research what has happened and to research the, the history of racial inequality in America. And so lynching is a, a huge chapter in that story. It's a huge part of that story. And so, yeah, we're going to send you to the, the EJI, which stands for Equal Justice Initiative. They did a really thorough, I think it's like, it's won awards even, like a really high quality report on lynching in America, covering the whole story. A lot of like the quotes I read earlier were drawn from that. And so we want to encourage you guys to to read that and to understand what's happening and just to grieve it, to don't, don't run away from the shame of what's happened, but grieve it and go through that process. And then we also like uh, in the second part of this episode, we're going to be talking about what uh, we believe is a modern day lynching, a modern day one instance of this past bubbling up again. And so we literally, we looked and without looking too hard, we found a modern day lynching that had happened two miles from where I live, which is just crazy to me that we didn't have to like go to some obscure place in Alabama two miles from where we live Within the last year and a half, there was modern day lynching. I mean, we'll, we'll get into, you'll hear more on that in the next episode. So, so that, that's something else that's going to be coming your way. But then also, we just need to grieve. Well, <laughs> I think another thing white people can do is don't just treat black people like your checklist. Like, I'm going to go to this one black friend, because there are a lot of white people with black friends that are racist. And there are a lot of black people who, I, in my opinion, walk in a, a lack of self awareness. Or they don't want to shoulder it, so they just basically become a chameleon. Like, there's all types of black people. You're right. not going to satisfy whatever it is you're seeking to feel by going to your black friend or your black brother-in-law or your, you know, black spouse. That's one black person. Even if you have 10 black people in your life or 20 black people in your life, there's a work that white people need to do and there's an understanding that white people need to have in that black people code switch. A lot of times we don't want to engage in these conversations. So sometimes we'll tell you exactly what you want to hear because we don't care. We, we need to, you know, because it's, it's an act of self-care. So a lot of times from black people, you're not going to, you're going to, you're going to get all kinds of answers because we've learned how to, we've learned to exist, how to exist and function in oppression, under oppression and microaggression in ways that aren't necessarily helpful to us, but we got to live. Yeah, like like you don't initially trust, right? Uh, I mean, let alone a p- police officer, but like just any white person. So I, like there's a way when, when you don't trust somebody and not even that they did something that made them not trustworthy, right? but it's just coming to the table with inherently not trusting, you change the way that you would talk 
um, or, or the way that you communicate behave. Yeah. or behave. Yeah, I mean, it's it makes sense. It's not you're well, not doing it because white people deserve a certain way because they did these things. It's literally just self preservation. Self preservation. You're just trying to be safe because you got to go to work, you got to take care of kids, and you got to exist in this microaggressive society that sees you as invisible. And so we can, like black people can smell it. We know, you know the ball is going to drop. A lot of times when our white friends, and I use friends loosely, when they, when it finally comes out that they're racist, and it's a lot easier now because people are taking the social media and they'll say and post the craziest stuff. So it's like, yep, there you go. There's a racist. And there's no, there's no doubt and there's differences between people who are racially ignorant, racially insensitive, and racist. And we get to say, "You're this is racist." We know the ball's going to drop, so we don't even engage. Because you know, I ha- I have so I know so many black people that are just like behind the scenes. We're like, "Are you for real right now?" You know, we just know. We're like, "Girl, you know, you know how it is." And when we are in white spaces, we have to wear the mask. Paul Lawrence Dunbar said, we wear the mask and we code switch. And we're like, yeah, okay, because we we just got to live. And it gets exhausting. It's not our responsibility to, to carry the race in that way. That's just like, I'm protesting. I'm out as a community organizer. I'm doing justice art. But there are Black people that don't want to. And I tell them, you don't have to. I mean, I think that any self-aware person, period, needs to be doing the work of justice. But I also acknowledge and recognize that Black people are having to exist in these spaces. And really, they, they, what they have to do is not lose their mind. Because <laughs> they got to, you know, they got to care for the next generation and they got to, you know, work on their marriage and they got a project to do at work. <laughs> so they also, they can't just shoulder 50 million questions from a person who's going to still consider themselves right about what they believe and it's not going to matter anyway. So we, 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 we have to navigate through that maze and it's, it's insane. Thanks for listening to part one of this episode. Make sure to look in your feed for part two. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics and listen to full interviews, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. Remember that all of the money you give in the first 10 episodes will go to the Denton African American Scholarship Foundation. We are going to be doing an interview later with the founder, so be on the lookout for that. And we'll leave you with this quote from Brian Stevenson. You ultimately judge the civility of a society not by how it treats the rich, the powerful, the protected, and the highly esteemed, but by how it treats the poor, the disfavored, and the disadvantaged. 